is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. What was thought by many political experts to be an incoming red wave looking more and more like a red ripple. Yeah, the Republicans still have a chance to take control of both houses of Congress. But it is far from certain as several key races are still too close to call. And even if it does happen, the majority will be razor thin. So we'll go in depth into whether former President Trump is to blame, though he said in an interview he shouldn't get any of the blame if things go badly. It wasn't a bad election night for Republicans in Florida, though. We look into how Florida is now a solid red state and whether its governor can challenge Donald Trump. Abortion playing a role in the elections as voters in two red states rejected limiting access to it. The L.A.'s mayor's uh, race is one of those races that's too close to call. No update on the vote count until possibly Friday. We can go in-depth on why Rick Caruso was able to close the gap as much as he did. Facebook's parent company is laying off a sizable chunk of its workforce as the tech industry continues to shed jobs. Russian forces are pulling out of an important city in Ukraine, but is it really a retreat? And the National Park Service does not want you to lick toads. Really, just don't do it, because apparently some people are are licking toads. I would imagine the toads don't like it very much. Well, have we asked them? Maybe we should. Maybe. And and you never know. We've had many interesting people and mm-hmm. maybe animals and maybe a toad on the show. Uh, we start, though, with the elections and the red wave that wasn't. Sean Walsh is a Republican strategist and former White House staffer. Sean, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Charles. I was reading uh, with with a certain amount of amusement, I must confess, uh, a number of stories this morning from various news reporting that uh, former President Trump is apparently outraged, livid is one word that was being used a lot, that uh, many of the people that he supported, in fact, people that he really, you know, sort of catapulted into the political arena did not make it in the elections last night. Uh, So is he to blame? Well, I, let me reverse a little bit. There's a lot of re- mainstream Republicans, as you noted. I was in the Reagan and Bush White Houses, and I was with Governor Schwarzenegger and Governor Wilson in California uh, in their administrations. That are pleased with that. They look to Florida and they look to New York. Actually, uh, if the Republicans do take the House, it went through Florida and New York uh, as the pathway forward. And that pathway does not include Donald Trump. Um, that pathway means that DeSantis charted his own path, Rubio to his own extent, and perhaps more significantly is Governor Kemp in Georgia, who Trump attacked vigorously, presented his own candidate to try and beat him off, and he won overwhelmingly to one of the thought-to-be rising stars of the Democratic Party, Stacey Abrams. So there's a lot of Republicans that are very happy tonight that perhaps we can detach ourselves away from the whole Trump orbit and move forward back to a more traditional uh, and, fiscally conservative Republicans. And I suspect yeah. you're, you're, you're right, Sean. But to go back to the initial question, nonetheless, that red wave was not the, the red wave that many political experts and, and a lot of polls predicted would happen. Uh, and as I said, I mean, Mr. Trump apparently is not pleased, as some people have put it, with the results. So in as much as it wasn't as big of a Republican victory as many thought it would be, is he to blame for it? Yes. He is. So three things. Number one, uh, Democrat turnout, which uh, is normally in an off uh, year. And when your party's in power, 
uh, tends to be lower or Republicans too. And so the Democrats came out on their base. They came out in big numbers. And I think Donald Trump was the principal motivating factor as well as uh, abortion. Number two, we couldn't take any uh, major inroads with independence, which really decide elections in the country today. And a lot of that has to do with Donald Trump. And number three, as Mitch McConnell said and said from the start, candidate quality. We had candidate quality issues, most of them that were Trump acolytes. And Mitch McConnell never said there was going to be this storming, you know, uh, 54, 55 votes. He always thought it was going to be one seat, and he's been consistent throughout. And again, it was candidate quality, and that candidate quality is a direct, uh, uh, directly a result of Donald Trump's uh, actions in this election. There seemed to be a narrative that settled in with the media that uh, this was going to be the Republican red wave. Part of that coming from uh, mainstream media, not just, uh, you know, the Fox News or or the media reporters on the right, but uh, in general. But then there was also some information coming out. Some pollsters and some experts said, no, it's not going to be that much of a red wave. We're seeing some excitement among Democrats. And uh, the narrative had also settled in that, well, abortion is not going to be a big issue. Uh, voters have moved on. They've forgotten about that. It's all about inflation right now. All of those narratives turned out to be kind of wrong. So did a narrative settle in? And and were we in the media maybe too unwilling to let go of it once we started seeing uh, uh, contradicting information? Well, in fairness to you and the media, I mean, you you go to the experts that are out there. You went to the pollsters who do this for a living, um, and you were following what they were saying, and they were saying pretty much it was going to be a red wave. So I don't, I don't fault the media at all for going to people who get paid to be experts. Uh, what I do think was underestimated a little bit was the fact that uh, Democrats came out in big numbers because President Trump presented what they thought to be a a danger. I thought that they were playing this threat to democracy too hard, but it did enough to motivate the Democratic base. And you tie in the fact that the economy did not swing independent voters to the Republican camp, and you have what you have. I still think we win the House. I still think we've got a, a shot at the Senate. Arizona actually has tightened quite a bit today. Nevada, I think we pull off and we do the special election. Uh, in Georgia. So we still win. And so if you're a Republican, you can still govern, even if it's small numbers. So a win's a win, as uh, Al Davis used to say, just win baby. But it's not going to be pats on the back. And if I were Mitch McConnell right now, and if I were Kevin McCarthy, I'd be very concerned of what their caucuses are thinking about their long-term leadership futures are. Let me uh, very quickly, Sean, go back to something you were saying a little bit ago about uh, DeSantis. And, and so are you simply saying or suggesting that because of DeSantis's win in Florida, is this the demise, in your view, uh, of Donald Trump? And before you answer that, I urge extreme caution because there are literally thousands of experts who have predicted the demise of Mr. Trump, and he still is there. No, I mean, what it, what it does do is it gives hope to a whole bunch of Republicans that we won't get whipsawed back and forth on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis by Donald Trump. I don't think it means the end of Donald Trump at all. What I think it means is you're going to have a very bloody, bloody fight uh, for the nomination to be president uh, on the Republican Party. I think this also sends a signal to the Nikki Haley's of the world and the Mike, Monpe- Mike Pompeo's of the world uh, and to a host of other Republicans that, yes, you know, Donald Trump doesn't have this lock step on our throats uh, hold over Republicans. So I think it's a good thing. The one thing that I fear is 
that because Trump's candidates did not do well is you have 16 Republicans running again, like we did last time that allowed Donald Trump to squirt through and get the nomination. So uh, that's it. I think his chokehold or his stranglehold on the party has loosened up quite a bit, but he is not gone by any stretch of the means. And Republican primaries are decided generally by more conservative voters, just as Democratic Party primaries are decided by more liberal voters. So um, it's a, a long pathway ahead. But again, there, there is opportunity for Republicans that I think are more traditional in the Reagan and Bush um, line of the party to move forward in this next election. Um, Sean, thank you so much. Sean Walsh, uh, Republican strategist and former uh, White House staffer, some uh, very good input, input there on uh, what's going to happen with the Republicans and uh, Donald Trump moving forward. Right now, though, while there was no red wave nationally, it was made clear last night that one state is now solidly red, Florida, and it's not from sunburn. It used to be a swing state, but doesn't seem so any longer. Governor Ron DeSantis easily winning re-election, and so did Senator Marco Rubio. With us is Dario Marino, Florida political analyst and professor in the Department of Politics and International Relations over at Florida International University. Thanks for being with us. So are you at all surprised by what happened in your state, and what does it mean for the 2024 presidential elections, do you think? Well, I... I, I wasn't uh, surprised, but I'm but I'm a little bit um, taken aback by how intensive it was. Um, the um, both Marco Rubio and, and Governor DeSantis swept areas that haven't voted um, uh, Republican in 20, 30 years. All the attention is in Miami-Dade County, which makes sense because it's the largest county. And it's 70 percent Hispanic. But the second largest Hispanic um, county in Florida is Osceola County, which is right at the gates of Disney World. And it's about 60 percent Hispanic, mostly Puerto Ricans. And it also voted for DeSantis and uh, and Rubio, uh, not as a big a margin as Dade County, but significant. Um, so it was a pretty uh, stunning uh, victory all al- along the board. And some districts, which were 60 percent Democrat, 65 percent Democrat, sent Republican um, uh, representatives for the first time in their history. So what was the reason for that? Why did why sudden the sudden shift to uh, Republicans uh, from voters that tended to be Democratic? Well, I think one of the reasons was, um, you know, Florida is a very service-oriented state. The service industry, the tourist industry is the biggest industry. Hispanics in Florida are over-representative in those areas, um, uh, both as, you know, from everything from waiters to managers to owners to accountants in those industries. And there were the industries that were hardest hit by the pan, uh, pandemic. You couldn't uh, uh, open hotels. You couldn't uh, open restaurants. And DeSantis uh, urging a quick return uh, to uh, uh, normalcy uh, won a lot of favors among Hispanics. Uh, the second issue is sort of the homeland politics. As you know, Cuban-Americans very much care about human rights in Cuba, but so does Venezuelans, Colombians, and other uh, Hispanics. 
And every time uh, President Biden talked about buying more oil from Venezuela, uh, he lost Hispanic votes in in in, uh, in Miami. Yeah, I, you know, I, I was going to say because you were mentioning in passing about uh, the district that has a lot of Puerto Rican uh, Hispanic voters, and and that made me think because traditionally uh, it was thought, well, Cuban Americans are going to tend to lean toward Republicans because of that long history, of course, involving Cuba and Castro. And uh, But why Puerto Ricans? Well, uh, because uh, it, remember, Osceola County is in the gates of Disney World, and they and these people were desperate to get reopened. And uh, DeSantis opened, opened the state up as quickly as possible. So that was one of the factors. Is is there a possibility that uh, you, as a political observer, uh, some strategists on the Democratic side say, you know what, maybe this is a silver lining for Democrats in 2024 because uh, we see that Donald Trump is a little bit weaker right now and uh, Ron DeSantis is stronger and Ron DeSantis is seen to be the one person who might challenge Donald Trump. If the uh, Republican primary in the next presidential election turns out to be DeSantis v. Trump, uh would the uh, far right side of the Republican Party kind of tear itself apart, figuring out who they want to support? And that might bode well for whoever, if it's Biden or whoever else is running for Democrats in 2024. Well, I, I would say this. I would say that the big winner in yesterday's, uh, you know, besides the president, I think the president was a winner yesterday in, in the uh, in the midterms because he lost a lot of less seats than presidential parties usually lose. Uh, we'll figure that out in the next couple of days, but it looks very good for him. Um, and the second big winner is Ron DeSantis um, and for a couple of reasons. One, he he won, uh, you know, four years ago, he barely won the governorship by 30,000 votes. Yesterday, he won by well over a million votes. Right. So that's an amazing political story and shows you what a good politician Ron DeSantis is. Um, and also, and, but all of Trump's, uh, most of Trump's people that he endorsed, especially for the U.S. Senate, lost. Masters in Arizona, uh, Oz in uh, Pennsylvania, uh, uh, Boric, uh, uh, however you pronounce his name, in New Hampshire. There were... Uh, uh, the former president had a very bad night. Um, so I think DeSantis, you know, you have to, uh, he's going to have to decide whether he's going to uh, run for not, uh, run or not. But it seems like 2024 is a golden opportunity for DeSantis, no matter what Trump does. I think Trump leaves these um, elections uh, uh, weakened. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Dario Moreno, Florida political analyst and professor in the Department of Politics and International Relations at Florida International University. You know, as to the question of whether uh, DeSantis might be thinking about running for president, mm. I, I think he kind of uh, kind of told everybody that because in uh, the debate with uh, Charlie Crist, Crist asked him point blank, uh, can you will you guarantee you're going to serve out your four year term? And he refused to answer. Now, they claimed it was because uh, Crist broke the debate rule and he didn't want to. But. Yeah, the well, point is, he did not answer that question. Yeah, sort of an old political trick, right? Yeah, exactly. Coming up, mass layoffs at Facebook's parent company. Does it mean trouble ahead in the tech world? And do not, do not lick a toad. 
Now, that's a warning from the National Park Service, and we're going to tell you why they felt it necessary to tell you not to, under any circumstances, lick a toad. Possibly one of the most important stories that you will hear. Oh, yes. Yes, On the radio in Los Angeles. Yes. Right now, though, we have to wait a while before we know who is going to be the next L.A. mayor. The race between Karen Bass and Rick Rosso, way too close to call right now. And there are way too many ballots left to count before it becomes clear which way things are trending. We'll get an update on Friday. Now, several months ago, it appeared that Bass would be a shoe-in. Stephen uh, Stambaugh is a professor of political science at Cal State Fullerton. Thank you so much for joining us. So what happened to this uh, Bass is a shoe-in thing? The campaign happened, for one. Uh, this was $100 million of money really well spent. Uh, and a lot of times, um, talking to some colleagues of mine, and one of the consensus items that we have is a lot of times when you have independently wealthy candidates bring in a lot of money to a campaign, a lot of times that money is not very well spent. It's spent on flashy things and it's spent on consultants and it's spent on everything other than reaching out to voters. And one of the things that the Caruso campaign seemed to do was flood the airwaves and set the agenda for the campaign. So everything was going to be about homelessness. Everything was going to be about crime. Everything was going to be about reaching out to the community. And it was setting the agenda from the top but then also doing that outreach and looking for cracks within the traditional democratic coalitions and to try to reach out to some of those communities in particular. You know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, when we were doing our election coverage last night, we were talking to a lot of experts and, and they often would bring up the fact that uh, Mr. Caruso spent uh, just about $100 million of his own money. Uh, and often it came up in a pejorative sense, like, oh, yeah, well, of course, uh, uh, he closed the gap because he's buying the, the election. But the other way to look at it, uh, and I think you were sort of hinting at that in your answer, is the other way to look at it is that because he had the money and he came without the backing of the Democratic machine, he was able to take whatever his messages were that resonated clearly with people and sell them on what his messages are. Isn't that the other way to look at it? Yeah, money provides an opportunity, but it doesn't provide success and doesn't provide results. Uh, there has to be uh, a strategy. There has to be some connection. There has to be some issues. I mean, we can look back at um, President Michael Bloomberg, uh, who spent a ton of money and did not become president uh, in the last time. Didn't even get a delegate, I believe. Money doesn't mean success, but it gives you the opportunity for it. And he had a really smart strategy. It's still an uphill climb. Uh, he's, you know, in the current totals, a little bit ahead. It's still very close. There are a lot of uh, mail-in ballots and late ballots, uh, ballots to be counted late. And at least if spring is any indicator, those may break a little bit more towards Karen Bass. And if so, then, you know, it's better to be her than it is to be him right now. But he made a race that shouldn't have been competitive, competitive because of that and because of a really start was a really smart strategy. So let's look at how he made this race competitive. Was it a matter of Karen Bass not doing the right things and he did? Or was it a matter of at the last minute, the scandal from the city council, even though they both took the same side on that question as to, you know, these people need to resign, however, but that might have redounded against her. Is that possible? It's possible in an, in an unusual way, a uh, slightly odd way. And it is that a inside institutional scandal is going to hurt the candidate viewed more as a political insider. 
So because she has held office in the past, not this office, but because she's held office in Congress and the state level uh, for a while, and he is not, if people are upset about the scandal and about the institutional side of scandal, just politics is corrupt and LA politics is corrupt, that's going to help the outsider candidate more than it will the insider candidate, even if they both had the exact same position on it and they were both offended by it and neither one had anything to do with it. It has that type of ripple effect a little bit. So having everyone from the president on down in the Democratic Party come and embrace her could have backfired. I think the president embracing would help. But I think um, in terms of the the part that would hurt in terms of the, the city council scandal, um, if the people who are still holding on had resigned right away and said, look, this was really dumb. I need to go back and do some soul searching. And there are other people who can take my place. Let's go ahead and do that and put an end to the story. That would have helped more. That would have helped uh, the insider candidate more. Uh, But because they didn't, then the story had legs to it. And the longer that the story went, the more it was going to hurt the establishment candidate. And I think that only really hurts at the margins because she wasn't involved in this at all. Uh, I don't want to give that impression whatsoever. Uh, But it is something that, you know, is one of those outside political environment things that neither candidate had any control over that was going to have an impact on it. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Stephen Stambaugh, professor of political science at Cal State Fullerton. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. One of the bigger issues for some voters in these elections was abortion. Voters here in California, as well as Vermont and Michigan, approved measures to protect abortion rights in their state constitutions. Voters in the traditional red states of Montana and Kentucky rejected measures that would have restricted abortion access. D. Stephen Voss is an election analyst and political science professor at the University of Kentucky. Thanks for being with us. Uh, are you surprised? I mean, it seems to be uh, after yesterday's results started coming in, it seems to be the question we keep asking people in many different states. Are you surprised by what happened with abortion in Kentucky? No, I wasn't surprised at all that the amendment failed. Now, if you you know you'd ask me this question prior to the Dobbs decision striking down Roe v. Wade, I might have expected something different. But we had a trigger law in place that was going to kick in uh, if Roe v. Wade were overturned, that imposed some very stringent anti-abortion regulations. Um, and once those laws kicked in, this amendment vote was not seen as a sort of general value statement on abortion. It was seen very much as a vote over those very strict abortion regulations. If the Republicans manage to get control of the House and, and control of the Senate as well, some have promised that they're going to be passing some abortion bans of some type at the federal level. Uh, will they possibly rethink that position, given the results of all these uh, ballot measures that have shown that uh, many voters are kind of like, well, no, let's not take that right away from us just yet? I don't know why these results should have been quite the surprise to them. You know, if you look at public opinion data on uh, voting, uh, I'm sorry, on abortion rights, not voting, but public opinion data, uh, you see that the, the sort of red state, blue state divide is greatly exaggerated. Kentuckians are about 10 percentage points more anti-abortion than the nation as a whole. Is that a difference? Yes. Is it drastic enough that you think, um, you know, harsh anti-abortion regulations are going to play really well in a state like Kentucky? No, it shouldn't have given that hope even before. I'm here. I am curious how easy or how difficult is it for a woman to get an abortion in Kentucky now? 
Well, with the trigger law, I mean, you basically have to have your life in danger. Um, but, you know, we're still at the stage where doctors and their lawyers and the courts are, are going to sort out the meaning of that trigger law before we really get final settlement on what Kentucky's law means. We're first likely to get a Kentucky Supreme Court ruling on whether that trigger law is even constitutional under our Constitution. Do you think some of the events that happened after the Dobbs decision uh, maybe colored people's perceptions of the question when it got put before them on the ballot? They started thinking about it in a different way. And I'm referring to the stories of you know, had some uh, uh, underage uh, rape and incest victims who got pregnant as a result and, and had to jump through hoops and travel out of state to, to get an abortion for that. Do you think that affected people's decisions when it came to the ballots? Those sorts of anecdotes were at the forefront of the advertising campaign for the people who did oppose this uh, anti-abortion amendment that would have been joining the Constitution. Now, understand, um, the failure of this amendment did nothing to change abortion law in Kentucky right now. All it did was leave open the possibility down the road, the Kentucky Supreme Court might read abortion rights into the Constitution. But we're basically under the same laws now that we were prior to that vote. Am I correct, though, that if the uh, event were to happen, that there's a federal law uh, all but a ban a banning abortion, as many Republicans want to have happen, that would then what? It would overcome uh, and override anything that was done uh, in Kentucky, would it not? Well, yes. I mean, you know, national laws, the supreme law compared to states, if, if we face a, a mandate, it's, you know, like any other congressional mandate. Uh, we can't beat them. Uh, but right now, the, you know, the doctrine from the U.S. Supreme Court is is not that we're unable to protect abortion. It's just that we're not forced to do so. Uh, so the state legislature could roll back those stringent regulations or the Kentucky Supreme Court could force a change in those regulations. Now, I know if you're thinking of this as a red state, a very conservative state, you may figure it's unlikely our, our elected Supreme Court would do anything to protect abortion rights. But the the legal system here has a track record. So, for example, when the Supreme Court said you're allowed to ban sodomy, uh, the Kentucky Supreme Court said, yeah, maybe under the U.S. Constitution, but not under the Kentucky one. So they have a precedent for uh, expanding liberties, expanding rights under the Kentucky Constitution that the U.S. Constitution does not grant. And what about your congressional delegation? Well, we, you know, we we have a variety of of legislators who uh, sort of span out across the ideological spectrum. They're not all the same. I I would expect to see a little variation if that came to the fore. But you know, a Republican politician coming out of the state uh, has a lot harder time um, voting anything that's pro-choice uh, because we have closed primaries, and when they they're up for re-election, uh, if they get primaried, if they get challenged by somebody to their right flank independent voters can't help them out here. All right. Thank you so much, uh, D. Stephen Voss, an election analyst and political science professor at the University of Kentucky. Well, Twitter, not the only social media giant laying off workers. Facebook's parent company, Meta, announcing it is letting go 11,000 workers. Now, that's about 13 percent of its workforce. This uh, layoff announcement comes as other smaller tech companies have recently laid off workers, too. So what in the world is happening to the tech industry. Burton Kelso is with us. He's a technology, social media, and cybersecurity expert. Thank you so much for joining us. Are we seeing maybe the end of this kind of social media era, at least in this form? I don't think so, Rob and Charles, because so many people are dependent on social media. 
Now, the layoffs are occurring with Meta and with Twitter because the low um, revenue as far as advertising is concerned on those social media sites. Can you two guess who's taking all of the ad revenue from um, from both uh, Meta and Twitter? No, I don't want to take the suspense away from you. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> it's TikTok. Do ah. you guys believe that? Why TikTok? TikTok is killing it as far as social media is concerned. And so this China-based company is just doing a better job at attracting followers. And I think TikTok's almost up to a billion users. And it's it's new, it's fun, and it's really taken away from the two old dog social media platforms, both Twitter and Facebook. I mean, they're just in a situation where they really need to change up how they do their platform and how they do business or else they're going to be gone. Isn't uh, Mark Zuckerberg taking a lot of heat because the amount of money that he's plowed into, I think it's like 10, I think I read $10 billion a year or something like that, uh, into the creation of what he calls his metaverse uh, augmented reality experience, uh, which so far is not paying off, right? Exactly. And I think that's one of the biggest reasons why they're having to lay off uh, 13% of their workforce. Because the challenge with the metaverse is that it is not something that you could just use with any device. Uh, I mean, you have to buy extra equipment. And then, of course, you have to get people to actually subscribe to the idea with the metaverse. It's almost like the old VHS versus beta debate from years ago. I mean, obviously, beta was the better technology, but just more movies were made for VHS. And that's what the general public went with. All right. So TikTok, it strikes me, is is built around more short attention span. Uh, short uh, videos. Now, I know in the past, whenever something in the social media realm looked like it was becoming popular, uh, Facebook would just snatch it up, and uh, like they did with uh, with Instagram. Uh, so, are we going to see these big companies like Facebook try to imitate TikTok? And if so, will that be successful? I I, I get the feeling that it won't work like it used to. Well, Facebook has already tried to imitate TikTok uh, because obviously with Instagram. And with uh, Facebook, you've got the option to do reels, which is essentially a knockoff of TikTok. So, I mean, that's already happened. But I think the thing that's killing the social media giant is, number one, with both Twitter, too, you've got a social media platform that's got a bunch of fake accounts. So you don't have real people that you're interacting with. And then also you have people that are commandeering Facebook and Instagram accounts. So it makes the platform unattractive if you understand that you have a lot of risk as far as your account's concerned. And then let's talk about how so many people are being thrown in Facebook jail. You don't want to be in an environment like that. And you're not going to advertise in an environment where your account could be hacked or you could be banned from the platform just for something that, you know, may have been said that causes issues for your account to be banned. So I thought Mark Zuckerberg is supposed to be some sort of a genius. Why is he doing so many dumb things? <laughs> I love that. It's because I think with technology, I think if you're in it, sometimes you can't see the forest for the trees. And so if you try to get too innovative, then you start to lose part of your audience and you just become unattainable as far as the ideas that you're trying to introduce and then the technology that you're trying to introduce as well. All right. Very quickly, I do want to touch on Twitter a little bit because that is part of the conversation now, too. Uh uh, Elon Musk could roll out this idea of like, okay, so the verification process is going to be a problem with people just buying it. So we'll have a second verification check mark. It'll be gray. And then he kind of started rolling that out. People did not react well to it. And then he changed his mind. Is that kind of chaos going to help Twitter or is, is Twitter going to die as a result of this kind of dumpster fire mentality? 
I think Twitter may be on the way out and it already has been because, I mean, the verification process obviously was used to verify those trusted accounts that you could rely on for information and entertainment. But if you start the process where people are paying for verifications, then it just cheapens Twitter. And then also, too, with the whole freedom of speech thing with people using hate speech on Twitter. I mean, it's just a platform that people aren't going to be attracted to. When it comes to social media, people want to be happy and see happy and good things. So, yeah, it's not looking good for Twitter. See, I I think what we've discovered here, Burton, is a a sort of a new uh, high-tech axiom for the industry. And and that is that just because you're incredibly wealthy and just because you have very successful companies, it doesn't mean you're not stupid. Well, (laughs) it makes it seem like if you get a lot of money, you're stupid. But I think what uh, Elon Musk... And what Mark Zuckerberg need to do is they need to really talk to their their customer base and find out the things that they want. You know, one of the things people reached out to Elon on Twitter was make Twitter so that you can uh, post with more than, what, 240 characters. I mean, even that small app would have made people stay tuned into Twitter. And I think that's the lesson that both need to learn is that you got to talk to your customers and find out what they want and make those innovations so that it can happen. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Burton Kelso, uh, technology, social media and cybersecurity expert. You see, maybe uh, the thing with the gray check mark that he tried to roll right, out and then right. took out, maybe it was just the color scheme. Maybe yeah. if he did uh, chartreuse, you know, you're that joking, might have worked. but that was my first thought was, was it? gray. Yeah. I mean, why does why it gray? have to be gray? Yeah. Something, you know, different. I don't want to be a gray check mark. You, I, I feel old already. You know, what would really work. Plaid. Plaid. Start your own Twitter, and I will sign up. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Russia's military says it is leaving the key strategic city of Kherson in southern Ukraine, and that would seem like a major setback for Russia and a big win for Ukraine, but is it? Well, Ukraine's president is suggesting that it might just be a ploy, but... For what purpose? Journalist Phil Itner is with us again. This time he's in Kharkiv in eastern Ukraine, close to the Russian border. Phil, thanks for being with us uh, again. Uh, So I don't know if you're in a position to know which one is telling the truth. Is is the military that we're hearing from in Russia that is that's saying there's a a, a, they're pulling out of Kherson? Are they accurate or is the president of Ukraine suggesting that this is all a ploy accurate? Do we know? Well, this time we don't know. Uh, we, what we do know is what we can see uh, with our own two eyes, and that is the fact, uh, as it was televised in Russia on national television, that uh, the decision has been made, the order has been given to pull troops out of uh, Kherson, which is the only remaining um, provincial capital that the Russians uh, have uh, conquered in this war. But the facts on the ground uh, are yet to be proven. We don't know if they're actually following through with that order, although there has been an awful lot of talk of uh, major le- you know, uh, leadership that are pro-Moscow uh, pulling out of the city. Civilians have been pulling out of the city. But the physical movement of troops is yet to be seen. And uh, if that does happen, it will be very precarious for the Russians no matter what. But the question will remain, um, is it safe for Ukrainian forces to then follow up and advance into the city? And that's the major question. 
Uh, hasn't Russian uh, done this kind of thing before, uh, made some kind of announcement uh, with the uh, goal, the attempt to draw Ukrainian troops out and then kind of ambush them? Could that be happening here? It's, it's a really good question, and that's, I think, what is leading to an awful lot of Ukrainian skepticism about an actual withdrawal by Russian troops, because this is not something the Russians do, um, not normally. Now, now, in the initial stages of the war, they did, um, they did uh, pull back from certain uh, areas, but even then they wouldn't admit that it was a retreat. Uh, they, they said that they were refocusing on uh, other areas of the country, namely the, the contested Donbass region, which kind of precipitated this entire conflict. Um, but, but even then, when they did an obvious retreat, they didn't admit it. They didn't openly announce it, and they certainly didn't put it on national television. So even though they did retreat, it was done in a very different way and under very different auspices. For them to openly say, we are physically retreating, we are pulling back our troops from this 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 capital that we conquered uh, is extremely unusual for the Russians, and I think is spurring an awful lot of this kind of uh, cautious talk coming out of Kiev. Okay, but let's for the moment and for the discussion, let's take the Russians at their word, and let's say they are pulling out of Kharkiv. Uh, what would that mean? Or, or well, not Kharkiv, but but another another great question. Uh, it, 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 it it's going to be devastating. It will it will be an it will be the latest round of open defeats in this catastrophic war for Russia that that so many people thought was basically a, a fait accompli. It was you know it was supposed to be a three day war that would have Russian troops marching down, uh, welcomed in Kiev, and we're now. Uh, you know, into our ninth month of this war, and there have been defeats after defeats. I am here in Kharkiv, where it was one of the first major defeats. This was on Night's Edge, and the Russians were repelled from here in the very beginning stages of the war. Uh, of course, the the assault on Kiev did not work. Their 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 flagship of the Black Sea Fleet was sunk. Uh, there has just been defeat after defeat after defeat for for the Russians, and this would be a defeat that would be really leave them with no accomplishments whatsoever since the invasion of February 24th. Now, there's one last quick point to make, and that is this is also one of the four regions where they held a sham referendum. Uh, less than 40 days ago, there was a sham referendum held in four major provinces in eastern uh, uh, Ukraine, and two of them were parts of the Donbass, uh, but there was also a couple of others, including Kherson. So according to the narrative in Moscow, this is now Russian territory, so they are retreating in their minds, or in their narrative, their own territory, and it's just another um, defeat upon defeat and embarrassment upon embarrassment. This is this will also allow, if it happens again, if it happens, this will also allow Ukrainian troops to advance to a position where they really are able to compromise access to the Crimean Peninsula. That will that will shut off Russian reinforcements coming from the peninsula. It will also shut off a, a, a route of escape uh, for them if that's the way it goes. But this is another turning point in this war that is a turning point in the favor of the Ukrainians if indeed the Russians do follow through on their word. All right. Thank you so much. Journalist uh, Phil Edner in Ukraine, keeping an eye on the situation there. 
If you're headed to a national park somewhere here in the southwest region of the country, the National Park Service has a warning for you. Don't lick toads. The uh, Colorado River toad apparently secretes a psychedelic substance from a gland that the Park Service says can be harmful to humans and dogs. Poison control says the substance can lead to numbness of the mouth and throat and might even cause cardiac arrest. And I would imagine the toad doesn't like it much either. Probably not. Probably not. With us is uh, Nicholas Matthews, founder and CEO of Stillwater Behavioral Health, which has branches in Santa Monica, Porter Ranch, and uh, Montecito. Thank you so much for joining us. So, you know, part of the problem here, I would, I would assume, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, if you tell people don't like toads, you probably don't want to add the part about to get high, because even with a danger, you know that's going to make somebody go, I think I'm going to try licking a toad. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, exactly. That's a, that's a really interesting way to look at it. Yeah. Uh, if I tell you not to lick a toad because it'll get you high, you're probably more likely to lick the toad. Sure. Uh, but I wonder, I mean, who discovered this? I mean, some, someone at some point said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to lick a toad and see what happens. And then they got high and they said, oh, I'm going to tell all my friends about it. I mean, why would anybody even think of doing that? Is this something that goes back in any kind of folk law or something like that? Yeah, you know, I remember when I was growing up, you know, and we would do acid mushrooms and call it your conventional psychedelics. There was always, you know, it's kind of in that same category as going out to the desert to to do peyote like Jim Morrison. I think we kind of romanticize these psychedelic experiences. But yeah, the first guy, I, I sure hope it was intentional because that would be a rough day if you <laughs> didn't intend to get high by licking the toad. Yeah, that would be an interesting kind of an accident to have. <laughs> yeah, it's a rough day. I fell and my tongue was out and I hit a toad. Uh, <laughs> you know, and also this other thing, you talk about, you know, Jim Morrison going out and doing the peyote and everything. It's not quite as romantic to say, uh, you know, a, a music star, a poet or writer, or whatever, saying, yes, I went out into the desert to commune with nature and I licked some toads. It's not as uh, romantic, is it? No. Yeah. And I would say the experience is probably not nearly as fun because there's something I have a hunch that the back of a toad probably doesn't taste that great. <laughs> have you ever actually known anybody who has done this? Because I understand some celebrities actually, you know, do it and boast about it, which is one of the reasons why it seems to have caught on, at least among some people. You know, I, I've heard tale of people, you know, experiencing this, but it's generally they don't actually lick the toad. They'll find somebody who, you know, uh, professional, I guess you could call it professionally, you know, gets this toxin and, and manufactures it however they need to. Wait, to wait, wait. You mean there's a professional it. toad liquor? <laughs> I guess that's, I mean, yeah, I don't know if there's a degree for it, but I think there's people that collect the toxin. <laughs> there's and, a degree for it now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. So uh, the warning does include, and this is the serious part here, uh, numbness of the mouth and throat uh, might even cause cardiac arrest. That's the most serious uh, problem that might occur from this. Do you have any numbers or figures that show that people have actually suffered heart attacks from toad licking? No, not that I've ever experienced or seen. I imagine if somebody had a heart attack, they're probably not going to tell the paramedic. Yeah. Keep that part did. a secret. Um, yeah, but I do know, I mean, look, this is a neurotoxin, right? It's, it's a defense mechanism that this toad has to keep it safe. So it's probably not wise to ingest anything that's supposed to be poisonous to protect animals. Well, and, and that actually does go and raise an interesting point, doesn't it? Which is, uh, 
forgetting about the toad for a moment, uh, I mean, there are a whole bunch of things that people, uh, you know, you were talking about going out into the desert before uh, and, and I guess sampling what peyote. Uh, I mean, there are a whole bunch of things that, that people think because it grows and is natural is therefore safe and nothing could be farther from the truth. Oh, absolutely. I mean, these, you know, a lot of these, uh, you know, especially in an instance like this, like I say, it's a neurotoxin. So it's it's nature's way to defend that toad from being eaten by something bigger. So if you're not eating it, just licking it, maybe you're getting some sort of psychedelic effect, but it is a poison. Um, we have to remember that, that nature has a knack of of coming up with creative ways to defend itself from predators. And uh, we shouldn't we shouldn't play with that. I don't think it's wise to try and manipulate that. Okay, I have a question in my head, and I'm, I apologize ahead of time, but this question is in my head now, and I can't, I can't get it out. You sure I, you want to get it out? I do. I have okay. to, because if I don't, it's going gonna, it's gonna to keep me awake at night. Okay. How does the toad react to being licked? I mean, you know, that's an interesting thing, right? I feel like that would be, imagine a giant picking you up and licking the back of your neck. Um, <laughs> I wonder if the toad watches as the psychedelic trip ensues after that that's got to be a weird a weird feeling for that poor toad that's for sure <laughs> there's the, a there's a meme called the hypno toad is there really and, and i wonder if it comes from this by the way we did uh, uh reach out to the uh, just to let people know we did reach out to the national park service and a spokesperson declined the interview opportunity you would think with all their warnings you would think they would want to talk about it but you know they don't why would that be? Why, why do you think they uh, wouldn't want to take the opportunity to express how you know bad of an idea it is to lick a toad? Well, look, I think you kind of hit the nail right on the head when you started. Their their warning didn't say don't lick the toad to get high. I think they want to steer away from the idea that you can get high. Um, they're just telling people, please don't lick the toads for whatever your motivation is. Leave these poor toads alone. Um, <laughs> and they probably want to leave it at that. Because you could croak. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that uh, that one's going to leave a mark. Uh, thank you so much for joining us and uh, ex explaining the danger of uh, licking toads and all the uh, ins and outs of toad licking. Uh, Nicholas Matthews, founder CEO of Stillwater Behavioral Health, which has branches in Santa Monica, Porter Ranch, and Montecito. Did our producers make any attempt at all to bring a toad in here so that we could uh, talk to it and uh, perhaps lick it and see if it is a problem? No, all the toads are too high to talk to. So yes, so we couldn't, cause we couldn't communicate. Are they licking other toads? I'm not going to ask, and no. I don't care. All right. That's for a future episode of KNX In-Depth. That's been today's episode of KNX In-Depth, one for the record books. We'll be back tomorrow.